Welcome to the second NAOP Silicon Valley podcast. Uh, again, to rehash, we had the first episode with Molly Ricker a few months back and uh, a little slow to get the second one out. But today we're sitting down with Deke Hunter of Hunter, uh, Hunter Properties, uh, as well as Curtis Lee, uh, who both have worked on a big project here in San Jose known as Coleman Highline. Purpose of the podcast is to get a little bit more granular on the, how that all came together, um, where it's at today, and where it's going in the future. And without further ado, let's get into the two folks that are running the show around here. Um, Deke, Curtis, thank you both for making the time to sit down today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, kind of a, an idea in this podcast is to make things a little more human than just yelling at people through the internet. Uh, I was going to start with Curtis. Uh, you, you guys have both been around Hunter for quite some time. Uh, but how did you get your start in CRE and ultimately arrive at Hunter? That's a good question. I, um, you know, I, in a weird way, kind of stumbled into the industry, if you will. Um, you know, growing up, I was always better in math and science, and so used those skills to end up in an engineering degree in undergrad. And then when I came out of that, um, had no idea what I was going to do, and so it um, kind of lended itself to going into the construction industry. So I started it as a <clears throat> working for a large uh, general contractor in Chicago. Um, then went to business school, which brought me out to California. Stanford. Yeah. <laughs> Go Cardinal. Underachiever. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, and then, you know, I did a, um, I did a outside the school class for a credit um, with Gary Wimmer on, on the Sand Hill Road. So we were, we were looking at his office buildings there and, and what he could do with a floor or even a small suite. Could he lease it out by office um, as opposed to an entire floor or entire building. So we were doing a little study, and then once I finished, I said, you know, could you introduce me to a few people in the area? I think I might be interested in real estate development. And those people were Deke and Ed, and so here I am 17 years later. Uh, but that's how I got in the industry. <clears throat> you know, a, a small regional firm no one's ever heard of, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> startup. Startup in Silicon Yeah, I Valley. came to the startup, yeah. the family startup. Yeah, That's awesome. Uh, and you've probably touched a number of projects because you've been here for, what, 15 years or so? 17, yeah. 17. Last, I can't count that last high. Last month, yeah. <laughs> Only 15 we're paying. Yeah. <laughs> Deep value play. I like okay. it. Um, do you have a favorite project you've touched and why? Uh, I would I'd probably have to narrow that down to two. Um, our at first project was kind of really the first big one that I worked on. Um, so that had all the components um, that we work on, essentially uh, retail and office. Um, and for those of people that are listening that can't see this, it's essentially at 237 and North First. Correct, correct. It's the, um, the old Brocade campus um, that has been sold a couple of times, most recently. To the Morning um, Trust. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now it has Broadcom as... Micron, it, I think. Micron. Micron, sorry. Yeah, you're good. the tenant. Um, you could edit that part out. Um, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the factual guy. <laughs> exactly. Everyone puts their pants on one leg at a time around this table. Right. Yeah. As long as you get both legs in. We sold it like 2012, <laughs> so we get a little bit of a break. So um, obviously at first I spent a lot of time out there from you know the very beginning to the end, ground up all the way, which yeah. is great. Um, I really enjoyed that project. And then Coleman Highline has been fun to see from – you know, the, the Lowe's anchored shopping center at one end at 880, all the way down to the Verizon project that we're trying to complete here in the next month. Um, and then even the, the site next door, which we call uh, <clears throat> Gateway Gateway Plaza, <laughs> Gateway Square. Uh, we, change, we change the name all the time. Um, so it's our you know, 1600 unit apartment project next door as well. So um, so you've, you've touched quite a few different product types. But, yes, exactly. We've been out at that site, though, since <clears throat> 2006. So it feels like a lifetime, but um, those two projects are my favorites. Very cool. And uh, you touch a lot of people, I'm sure, in the industry. Do you have a single person or handful of people that you look up to in this industry, and why? You know what? When I started in development in the Bay Area, um, really the reason I came to work here was because of Deke and Ed. And so um, they've been my mentors here for the last 17 years. And so I have to, it sounds a little cheesy because he's sitting next to me, but I have to, I do <laughs> have to talk look after up the, the podcast. I do have to look up to those two. 
He's uh, shooting for, sure. for that they, 18th year. <laughs> they've helped me. Yeah, exactly. He's still on double super secret probation, as the <laughs> mayor would say. Exactly. Yeah. We have a large earnout provision. That's awesome. Um, and then, uh, what are the biggest things you've learned in looking a little more into your background? It looked like you did investment banking in construction. You're now in commercial development. Do you see any commonalities? Absolutely. I mean, any business you're in, it's a people business. A big um, hammer does the job, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Bag money, all that stuff. Yeah. No. So, um, you know, it, it's the people you work with and doing things you like. So, you know, I've, I've found my place where I'm, I'm doing what I like, I'm doing it with people I like, and treating people the right way gets you, you know, where you need to be. And so um, that was common in every place I've worked, you know, w- watching people and how they deal with other people and, and treating them the, the right way, I think is, is, you know, the key to success for sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, turning to uh, the wise sage of Silicon Valley, who's got the second best hair after John McNellis, we've got Deke Hunter. Wow. No, John. <laughs> really. It's that Grecian formula that gives him the edge, I think. <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, go through some of the same questions here. Uh, how'd you get into CRE? The way I got into the business, I, I've always had a job, and I knew I liked sales, and so on. I was in car uh, sales, car sales, <laughs> ice cream sales, uh, debris sales. But uh, while in college, I worked for CBRE in San Francisco, and when I graduated from uh, University of Pacific in '82, I knew I wanted to go into commercial sales. So I'd taken a track uh, to better uh, refine those skills. And by happenstance, ended up uh, working that summer here in the office and have been here for 40 years. And you've done a few things in between. <laughs> a couple things, yeah. <laughs> uh, perfect segue to the next question. Favorite projects, why? You know, it's interesting. I, um, I think one of the, uh, the strengths of our office, working with Curtis, working with the rest of our team, and, and Ed and my dad especially, is I still am really passionate about my job. I jump out of bed every morning. So when you ask me about my favorite projects, it's easy for me to say what I'm currently working on because that's, that's how I do feel. As to Curtis's answer, though, I do think our at first project was our first chance for us taking our skill set you know, along the retail product line, hospitality, large zoning and capitalizations, and really applying that in one place. And so large office, large retail, large hospitality uh, through a financial recession really gave us a chance to, um, I think, exhibit our ability to run hard and at the same time manage a lot of headwinds. And uh, and I think that's the strength of a lot of the middle-sized development companies in Silicon Valley is that we've all been in business a long time, whether it be a South Bay or even our bigger computer. Never heard of her. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, we all do good work, but we've all done a lot of good work sometimes during bad times. Yeah. And and that uh, quite often can kind of leave a little, that's a little extra star in your heart about how much you like a project because you did it during a big headwind. So for me, it would be at first yeah. if I had to give one answer. Got it. And with respect to folks, you look up in the industry, I think you quickly mentioned your father was in the industry, but separate from that, who are some folks you look up to and why? Well, you know, it, it's a good answer. And, and uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm tapping into Curtis and Ed specifically. We've been uh, such a close partnership with actually very different skill sets. Um, I'm clearly the most ADD burden person in the office. And that's, it's great. And I, I can kind of bounce around lily pad to lily pad um, comfortably. Where Ed is a person of integrity and clear speaking and really has, I think, made inroads for us in our entitlements. And Curtis, uh, along with Sherry Preeb and, and Bob McMaster, really has been the steady hand on the till. If I look outside the organization, I think back over the years and it's not like when I call out these companies, they ever showed me a whole lot of love. But I remember early on just in awe of the Sobrato companies and nothing from Perry Arriaga or, or others of that size. But I felt that John Sr. and then John Michael 
and on in their organization just built such high quality projects and um, and always really admired them for it. So I, for me, as I look out and I look at how much they give back to the community, they're probably uh, one of my favorite ones that I, you know we would emulate, but definitely I think uh, help motivate us. Yeah, perfect. Uh, next question, and I forgot this one for Curtis. Apologies, but uh, I think there are some listeners that are younger in the industry. And if you were to rewind back to when you were thirty, is there anything that pops to mind that you wish you knew then that's clearer today, perhaps? I'll let Curtis well, go first. Yeah, I don't know how old you think I am, but that was just a couple of years ago. At least uh, old like... enough to have a beer legally. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, I'm trying to think. When was that? 30. When I was 30, I started here. So um, so I, I really didn't know anything about the industry. Um, but, you know, it, what I wish I knew back then um, is how, how challenging this industry can be. Um, you know, I mean, so many people said you could, you could go learn the industry in a few years and then you could go off and do it yourself. And I mean, still learning. <laughs> yeah, that is the that's the funniest thing I think of now. When back then, I thought might have been a reality, um, but you you know you you grow and you you meet other people, and I I feel like projects get harder and harder to either finance or entitle. You're not the only one. And so <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just totally different now than it was you know 17 years ago. So. Um, so patience, like, perhaps. Patience, exactly. Yeah, patience and knowing how the industry really, really runs other than what it looks like from the outside and how difficult it can be. Thank you. Deke? Yeah, I guess the way I'd answer that is, you know, to Curtis's point, when you're 30 years old, you know, in very traditional terms, you may have fallen in love, you may have started your family, and you're so new in your job it's just, it's a frenetic business, right? You're just racing from decision to decision, action to action, and you don't really afford yourself to pause and, and kind of reflect back like we are now. So at, at age 30, what I, I wish I knew was um, that I could see how all the parts of Silicon Valley were fitting together. If you look at strength of industry to the accessibility of capital to the ability for us to scale from a suburban to an urban model. If I could have taken that, if I could have just, you know, I intellectualized all the things that I was seeing, but I was trying to put food on the table and get home and still have a little bit of a good time. Um, I, th I think you may have gone about the business differently. I wouldn't change anything over the last 30 years, but, um, you know, we woke up then like we do now, like every day is our last day. And I, I think uh, there are a lot of bright days and you don't have to look at it so uh, desperately, which I think we all did when we were 30. It's just desperate times trying to, you know, do the right thing, do it well and, and, and be compensated so you could live your life. Thank you. Uh, moving onward for Deke, uh, you own a lot of commercial real estate, a restaurant, and along the vein of what I was asking Curtis, are there any commonalities you've seen uh, between the multiple hats you operate, own, interact with? Yeah, it's, it's a stretch to make this connection, but I'll make it for myself, and, and hopefully it's worthwhile. Is What I love about the development business is the range of people that we interface with, and uh, none more important from how we get projects built to how we entitle them, capitalize them, our tenants, and, and therefore, I think to be in the real estate business, whether you're in sales or you're in development or finance, you must be a people person. And what's come out of being a participant in an operating business like Rosati's or like the earthquakes or even like the self-storage business is in an operating business, the lights go on and you're a people person and you're compensated for that, for the quality of the delivery for the quality and the reliability of your interaction. And those are the similarities. I think that's why owning the restaurant's been so fun. Is it a bar? Yeah, that helps owning it too. <laughs> but uh, I think- If you have those bad days, you know I, where to go. Every day is a good day when you own a bar. Uh, so I think for us, it's just as an extension of liking people, liking different people, and uh, being, well, being willing to ex you know, expose yourself to those different situations. 
Thank you. Now, uh, for the main event, if you will, we're here to talk about Coleman Highline. And I thought, or I think a lot of people thought, it was an especially interesting project to discuss on this infant of a podcast we're doing. Uh, Given its high visibility, its relative complexity, how multifaceted it is with respect to, on one site, you've got retail, uh, soccer stadium, Massive office with some very unique features we'll get into that, you know, many people around here haven't seen outside of New York, Uh, hotel, residential, and uh, close proximity to light rail as well as San Jose Airport. If anyone's ever flown into the airport, it's the huge office building next to the soccer stadium to the left of the runway. Um, And if you have an opportunity uh, as you're listening to this or after and you want to get a sense of what it looks like. Uh, go to ColemanHighline.com, see the site layout, and you'll appreciate the complexity as we talk through it today a little better. Um, additionally, if you want some more information on Deke or Curtis, website's HunterProperties.com. Uh, feel, free, feel free to check it out. So without uh, further ado, let's get into this. Um, most recently, I think a big news event uh, that maybe we just start with is there's multiple phases to this deal. A uh, big headline, I think, that dates back to about a year ago, jump in if any of this is incorrect, is you sold the first phase uh, to Blackstone, who are some incredibly smart, large institutional investors. Before we get serious, is John Gray, did you get to meet John Gray at all during this process? Um, I think our project wasn't large enough to get John's attention. Uh, so we, he <laughs> I heard he's the smartest guy in the room. Uh, Chris Graham uh, was sort of the point person for Blackstone, and, and we think highly of Chris. He yeah. moved over from J.P. Morgan a few years ago. So uh, John would have uh, Chris puppet his questions to us. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Well, if John ever listens to this, would love to sit down with you and pick your brain at some point. But um, anyways, uh, so... Uh, historically, what was the site? I mean, I've, I've been in San Jose for a fraction of the time, both you guys have, but my understanding was this was a tank factory back in the day. Yeah, so uh, back uh, yeah, during World War II, FMC, uh, Food Manufacturer Corporation, used this site for the original development and manufacturing of the Bradley Fighting Vehicle. And the Bradley Fighting Vehicle is the equivalent of the VW Bug in the U.S. Army. So it was a semi-amphibious uh, tank. It's now known as the Bradley tank or the M1 tank. They were manufactured out in uh, York, Pennsylvania. And up till about uh, 2010, we kept their R&D facility at yeah. the far end of the property, all the way up in Santa Clara at the corner of uh, Brokaw and Coleman. And uh, so they shuttered the property uh probably completely in the 70s, the city of San Jose. Uh, we actually managed the property after it had been shuttered for FMC. The city of San Jose acquired it, used it as a laydown when they rebuilt the airport, and then the city of San Jose disposed it, and that's when we acquired their site. Yeah, and I mean, that that's a huge time span with a lot of different events. You know, in getting prepped for this podcast, I just reached out to a few folks and said, what do you really want to understand or hear about on that site. Um, and I think everyone focuses on what it is today and the, the glitz and the glamour and how unique it is. Um, but can you just walk the listeners a little through um, how you, you guys got in front of the city and ultimately acquired it? Was it by virtue of that property uh, management you had done? Was it a full process or how did that all come together? You know, I don't mean to step over Curtis on this, but uh, it was clearly a, a series of events. So in this case, uh, when we acquired the BAE portion of the property, that was not portion of the ownership of the city of San Jose. That was all in Santa Clara. So we acquired that property to develop it the way that we are now setting out to do as roughly 1,500 apartments. And at that time, the earthquakes came to us, and they were looking at building a new soccer stadium. Local soccer team for those listening. Yeah, so uh, local MLS soccer team. So they came to us about acquiring a site uh, over by San Jose State. And uh, uh, Ed, I think, actually led the idea, was this idea of doing a mixed-use development of both commercial and, you want to call it entertainment retail or sports entertainment. And that was very unique for the city of San Jose, for them to acquire uh, a team that used to play in San Jose, have a major league soccer stadium, put it across from the airport, 
and really sort of regionalize that footprint, that was the differentiator. So when the city of San Jose opened up the bids, of course, price mattered, integrity, quality, et cetera. But the fact that we came with a soccer team really was the defining feature. Yeah, I think the only other thing I would add is we were at the time after we purchased the, um, the BAE site, we call it, which is um, Gateway Square at the one end. We were also developing the Coleman Landings retail site for Eli Reinhardt, the owner. Okay, and so that was a separate site entirely. Yes, on the other okay. end. So we were basically either owned or developing on either end of the site. If you Google the so, in and out closest to the airport, it's that retail center. <laughs> that center, exactly. <laughs> or Starbucks right there. Yeah. So. And we oddly actually developed the retail at the Costco development too. Yes, that so, was even before. Got it. Yeah. Further uh, <laughs> northeast. Yeah. So, so two, two separate sites, and then you guys got involved. and We got involved. And so uh, clearly then it was a chance to start to do a mixed-use development, the complementary nature of commercial with uh, a sports team and that parking, how to coordinate all that, uh, that entitlement. The original EIR was for about a little over 2 million square feet, more of an R&D product. We moved that to a Class A office uh, entitlement, which is out there went out and built the soccer stadium first, and then we kind of started to develop incrementally the office product. And hopefully I'm not dancing around too much here, but I think a point of personal curiosity is like, what dictated the sequence in which you built things out? Was it uh, mandated by the entitlements that you achieved, or was it just, hey, part of our thing was getting the quakes here, we needed to like get that squared first? It's actually a really good question, and, and, and the way to, to sort of you know, put that into context is when we're doing infill development, downtown Redwood City, downtown Sunnyvale, you've, you've got a pretty hard boundary around your property, right? You, you know it's an acre or two, and away you go. Here we are sitting with 125 acres, and we're trying to site plan where do we put a 20,000-seat stadium, and, and really it could go at either end. It could go in the middle. And... Uh, it was that was almost the hardest part of the project is where to start when the canvas was that big. Well, how do the pieces work together? How do you park people? How do you share resources? Like exactly, yeah. You know, is you know is soccer a product that really lives and dies with mass transit, or you're really not going to draw that many customers to, to an eighteen thousand seat stadium from mass transit? So having it important, being on top of it, not as important. Are you in Santa Clara? Are you in San Jose? And because that property is uh, straddled by both uh, the city line of both those two cities. So the hardest part for us was landing where we wanted to put the stadium. And the, uh, the team, who's our partner that we're a participant in, was fairly fungible. So it actually would have been easier if they would have told us. But uh, I don't know. What do you want to do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of those discussions. You can just take them to the bar and, like, you know, hold know. them down and be like, make a decision, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it was really on us. And then, you know, and then, it was, of course, as you, def, you know, refine your ideas. So we wanted to socialize the stadium. So we, draw, we drew it closer to 880. And then we started to build a pedestrian context to that. And then we started to lay out our office products and amenities building into that plan. So uh, step one, hardest step, was putting down the stadium. Step two was then starting to develop the office product, knowing that even when we built 300,000 feet, there was still going to be 50 acres sitting there left to be developed. So even 300,000 feet felt small at first. It's a little bit of wood to chop in terms <laughs> of acreage. <laughs> There's a lot of indigestion, let's say, at that. And, uh, yeah. you know, our partners were great. That's the... Uh, a company called Sansom Development, which is an extension of the, the Fisher family. And, um, you know, they put a lot of confidence in us and us in them. And, uh, and we went about it in a very sort of, uh, I would say, diligent and thoughtful way and kind of marched our way down the street. Well, I think it was also interesting. Um, Makes it sound so easy. Yeah, early <laughs> on because we had so many discussions, which end do we go on? Yeah. But because... We do have an navigation easement out there that. Oh, gets, that's right. Gets Given higher. the proximity to the airport, yeah. Yeah, as you get as you get further east, if you will, or closer to the shopping center, we didn't have quite as much height, and so by putting the stadium there, which isn't as high as some of the taller office buildings, we're able to gain momentum as we built down the street and build taller buildings. So as you see today, Verizon is the tallest one we've built out there as we got further down. So it, it worked out as we. 
continued down, marching down west. Well, I mean, yeah, there's those considerations with respect to, again, navigation easement is simply airspace uh, restrictions effectively that limit heights of buildings near airports, which this is directly across the street from. So a lot of things to kind of contend with. It actually was, you know, we used to joke around, there used to be that John Candy movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yeah. And that was really one of our early marketing, you know, strategies was, you know, here we are, we've got actually heavy rail uh, behind us. We have Caltrain, we have BART coming eventually. We have this property that was a tank factory. We have internet all around us. We have fiber on Coleman, fiber on the railroad tracks, and then we have an airport. Reading the Alta has got to be a nightmare on that. It, it's, yeah. that full employment. <laughs> and, uh, I'm surprised we had to Ke- move those fiber lines too. Disappointed is... Kieran Wright hasn't added us to their name. And uh, so, I was going to say, you want to make a shout out? We got a lot of people listening. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, so it's it really was a, a challenge, you know, where, where you're dealing with sound attenuation or any other impacts of being around a a big bone site as we describe it, and then trying to make that, you know. Uh, uh, a human aspect, and that's kind of where you were leading about, you know, the Coleman High Line, in which we were trying to bring in a pedestrian uh, aspect to otherwise could just be a scattering of buildings. And, uh, right. you know, we are building our own submarket. We've built our own submarket out there. Is it just a collection of parts, or is it something and- that's knitted together more thoughtfully? And so, whether it's one or the other, and nobody needs to say it out loud, the desire was to knit something together, and physically we did. Just to pause for a sec, folks that might not be familiar with what a Highline is, Google it. I think it originated in New York, correct, where they took an old uh, above-ground rail, and then they unified it somehow, turned it into a pedestrian kind of like wandering parkway. And so that's the design feature I believe you're alluding to, correct? Yes, correct. So, you know, Clearly, what we're, you know, it, it's all the buzz. We're trying to socialize these buildings, especially as we add you know, density to these buildings, trying to build collaboration. At the same time, there's something about being off the ground and, and adding uh, v- different view corridors and different connectivity. So the, the High Line was a way for us to expand our floor plates by still building common floor plates to connect buildings without necessarily routing everybody down the elevator and out the door. And at this point, we're obviously moving to like the next phase. So think of like one end of the property being this retail component we've alluded to, followed by a soccer stadium. Now you're getting into the description of this unified kind of office building. And again, uh, first phase was how many square feet approximately? It's approximately 360,000. So it's a five-story building and a six-story building. Of what will be continuing, like when you finish it out, 1.5 million square feet? Actually, we're already at about... We're at one four and change right now, and we're about to uh, uh, announce a spec project of another three hundred twenty thousand feet out there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so I, nearly one eight when we're finished. It's a little more than the package that's out there online. Yeah. <laughs> um, we leave the numbers to South Bay Development. Yeah. We're just trying. To Again, never, never, never heard of her. Um, <laughs> And uh, with respect to, like, shout out, uh, I think you'd given a nod to the number of people and personalities involved with each of these deals. I think something that was super impactful is I remember in an event when I think the first phase buildings were coming online, I forget if it was for NAOP, um, but you actually purposefully gave a shout out to the general contractor, the subcontractor, the engineers. Um, do you want to just take a quick moment and talk about some of the other parties like involved that played a major role? Sure. Um, so the original plan, like we talked about, having a stadium on one end and eight buildings as we marched down the street, um, was with Gensler. And so Gensler was the design architect. Never um, heard of him. Never heard of him. Yeah. Again, um, you don't know anybody. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And um, they they laid out the buildings. They did the design for the buildings. Um, Deke actually fed the, the Highline concept in, or connecting at the third floor and, yeah. and having larger floor plates on the second. And so... They took that and made what we have out there and now, and they did a great job doing that. Um, and then once we got through um, SD and DD, we essentially flipped to DevCon in their architecture department, and they were the architect of record and then built the buildings for us. Um, so And even on the building, like part of that construction is the destruction of improvements. Did you guys like hit any top secret bunkers from the tank factory on the demo? Yeah, we, um, we didn't hit a whole lot. I know the stadium... They, they found some underground bunkers that were empty 
that were kind of interesting concrete bunkers they weren't expecting, but there was uh, there was well, definitely some interesting stuff out there from the old tank factory. Surprise demo costs. <laughs> yeah, probably the worst thing we had was uh, we had the practice fields built, and we were still operating at the, I'll call it the west end of the property, and we were test driving a tank. One of the board members. For you FMC. guys were? No, they wouldn't let us. <laughs> they, they wouldn't let Ed, that's for sure. He's a yeah. terrible driver. And so uh, a board member came out, was was driving a tank. We had a, we had a little test track out there, and he hit the wrong lever, and he jumped a curb, and luckily got it hung up before it, it hit the practice field where the, the team was practicing. Oh, and that was uh, the last day that the city... <sighs> The city forced us to exercise our option six months after that. We were, kind of had this ongoing option. But uh, that was probably the most exciting thing we had out there with those tanks. But uh, the demolition actually went along pretty smoothly. We, you know, if you think about from a vibration standpoint, you know, we, we dug out you know, 10 to 15 foot deep concrete right. footings out there to get that out of the way. But uh, outside of that, you know, no really unspent munitions, nothing super exciting in that yeah. regard. No, and I, I didn't want to derail. I just know a few people were just like, I'm curious, do they have any, like, surprises? Like, they used to, they used to build tanks. I mean, yeah. like, there's yeah. got to be something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, yeah. uh, apologies for the derailment, but uh, DEFCON was the general. Um, Curtis and... Yeah, so Gensler, DEFCON. Um, we had Kieran Wright on the civil out there. Um, as was that Ryan Amaya? Yes, Ryan Amaya <laughs> and his team. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark Knudsen uh, and Dan, so... Then you had um, Michigan Medinger for the structure. Yeah, Michigan, uh, yeah. which is now, you have to edit this one, I'm forgetting their name. Uh, IMEG. IMEG, yeah. Okay. IMEG. Um, so they've since become IMEG. Um, Kevin Menninger. And uh, the financing side has been Wells Fargo the whole time. Yep. From first Start phase all the way through. Yeah. Um, but it actually, you know, it, it's a, as you kind of list out the honor roll of, of all the participants, this is kind of my comment to your question about when you were 30. Yeah. You know, what, what you wish you knew. You wish you knew there were companies like DevCon, like Sprig, you know, like RC Electric. I mean, all these just, you know, Preston Pipeline, Sanco, JJ, really the, the quality of our area, not just for tech, because that's what everybody thinks about, is the quality of the subs that we work with. Right. And, it's a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to see the pretty picture, and you couldn't pick better firms. Oh, but the number of hands that touch these deals that people see and don't is amazing. Yeah. Like, I mean, we had, you know, in just during the, the Verizon building at one time, we had over 500 subs on our site working in one day. You know, and, you know, that just speaks to our, our community, both from tech, from education, but to, you know, sort of the backbone of what really makes, you know, our area grow, and that's that working force. So it's been a huge blessing that I wish I could kind of conceptualize that 30 years ago. No, it's hard to appreciate. I think Curtis was saying, like, you go through a few of these and you see how many, again, people you interact with, things you don't know, and things to problem solve through, and it's stunning. Exactly. Um, and a comment you made, actually, uh, Deke, you're saying, like, hey, phase takedown. On the overall site, was it broken into different components that you took down? Because I'm thinking, like, this has occurred over a long period of time. I mean, metaphorically, you're growing like an oak tree on this site. This wasn't a quick acquisition. Yeah. Do you mind sharing a little about how the mechanics of that worked? No, or? And I, I appreciate the oak tree reference to my physical stature. Is uh... <laughs> I don't know if there's enough room in here for me and your ego, but I'll take it. Uh, no, so, uh, or as old as I look. Uh, Wise sage. Yeah, so if you think about it, we bookended the property, right? We bought a piece of property in Santa Clara, which is, at that time, was the operating portion of BAE. We developed uh, at the direction of Arcadia up at the east end of the property right there at 880 and Coleman across from the airport. With the city of San Jose, then the remaining, let's call it 75 acres, the way we structured that was... Uh, we would take it down in three pieces. The first piece was the piece for the soccer stadium and then tranche one, tranche two relative to the commercial development. And as we hit either timing milestones or development milestones, it would trigger the remainder. So build the soccer stadium, you earn the right to buy tranche one. Start tranche one, you earn the right to buy tranche two. So it's not punitive from like a promote perspective because you're, you're taking it down as you're chunking through stuff. True, but you are taking down roughly, you know, 
let's just call them 30 acre pieces. So the, the, the pro does big bites, you know, <laughs> kind of big bites. It is interesting, you know, when, when you're a firm actually like South Bay, like ours, you know, like Keenan Lovewell, these long projects, I think if it was your only project, they feel real long. But when they're part of everything else you're doing, you know, you visit your deal, you work on it, you, you know, initiate an EIR. Well, that's 12 months, and you go about something else you're doing. So it, it just fits into our routine of what we're doing. And so while a lot of time goes by, it wasn't you know, like, you know, I was working on my golf game, like, you know, the brokers at CBRE. I mean, <laughs> I was you know, out <laughs> trying to pay the mortgage. And so wow. uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> It, it does take a long time, but with the city of San Jose, they wanted soccer, and then we kind of earned our way into the balance of the property. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, and I think uh, we, we've kind of chronologically been rolling through the early stages into the office first phase, which is now completed. Uh, Roku, Roku, I think, leased the majority of that, and then uh, was it 8 by 8 as well? Yeah, so we, we built two buildings on spec, uh, uh, eight by eight came out and leased building one. Number mm-hmm. two was vacant at the time. Uh, Roku came out, leased building two, uh, with the uh, goal that we build buildings three and four for them within a certain time frame. And then uh, eight by eight outgrew their space before they actually moved in. And Roku was growing at a pretty good clip, so they took over building one from eight by eight. Would you like to share with the listeners a certain uh, April Fool's joke? pulled surrounding said tenant <laughs> Curtis is being nice and he knows that I like my sense of humor more than most people it like was pretty that. solid when I heard about it <laughs> so uh, we, was, knew, uh, we knew 8 by one. 8 I didn't know about that one until I saw this <laughs> <laughs> we knew 8 by 8 was out in the market and uh, and there are a couple great projects that South Bay had out at that time one on North First Street and uh, another one uh, in the Campbell market and it came out to us that they had issued an LOI. So I uh, called Mark Regoli up or Troby, I can't remember which one, and told him that we had actually worked out 8 by 8s growth and we've decided to accommodate them and didn't want them to, you know, waste a lot of time on that. Let's just say there was a little bit of tension in the office. A little bit of tension. <clears throat> was and this on April 1st by chance? Actually, it was on April 1st. No, 100%. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I waited a day and then I left him a message that I was only joking. Ha ha. Uh, oh. <laughs> then we started piecing the office back together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and it all worked well. 8 by 8 has turned out to be a great company and they're out in Campbell. And uh, when the paint dried, you guys sold that project. And, uh, Roku's continued to grow, so they're in buildings one through four. Uh, we skipped over buildings five and six, and then uh, Curtis has led the charge to develop the Verizon campus, which we refer to as building seven and eight. And so in terms of, like, phasing, I, I'm pulling out a, a map right now. There's, I'm sorry, is it one, two, three, four phases? Yes. Correct. So we, we jumped phase three. And we've now renamed phase three to the final phase. And for those listening, the theme, and I'd suggest you guys go to ComlinHighline.com. It looks like two office buildings connected by that High Line, corresponding structured parking. Uh, is it an amenity area, kind of corresponding almost to every phase? Correct. Yes. Um, and what they're alluding to is it's kind of like this rolling uh, office. Each has a different layout. Uh, High Line features uh, segregated parking. And uh, just to rehash, the first phase is the one that sold the Blackstone, correct? Correct, yes. Building was one and two. And so you're rolling through uh, second phase, and I'm sorry, fourth phase? Yes. Correct. Right now? Yeah. So okay. B7 and 8 uh, on your site plan there is where um, okay. Verizon is. But essentially, we connected those two buildings. So B7 and 8 become one big building. Got it. And essentially, the idea was with every two buildings, there's an amenities building. And an amenities building could be you know, 100 properties doing retail leasing in there to somebody having a showroom to having an executive center. Yep. And uh, A1 turned out to be a health club. A2 turned out to be, uh, I think, for their, like, a media conference center for, for Roku. Yeah, they have a theater in there to display their products and um, conference space. So worked well with the, with the office uses. It really has. Yeah. And then uh, A4 for Verizon is probably a little bit more traditional. It's uh, they're a large cafeteria and a large uh, fitness facility on top of it. 
And may I ask, it seems like you're, you're chopping wood through those, you're building those out, you've got some, some lease solutions on these. Uh, is your thought, hey, you guys are going to hold this remnant component? Does Blackstone have the ability to like purchase this because of the interconnectivity or no comment? And it's not so much that's a no comment. We, it really varies a lot depending on your institutional partner. And our partners here, their, their goals kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit. So yep. we went from a keeping mode, a hold mode, to a disposition mode. Uh, so we sold one and two. We've kept three and four. There's no obligations to Blackstone, but they were a great buyer. They've been a great owner next to us, and that would just be a, a natural extension. Right. We did put this property into an opportunity zone many years ago, so we actually developed buildings three and four in our own opportunity zone, um, and we haven't restricted ourselves for that on the other phases. Wow. And so from a tax perspective, yourselves and the Fishers have an advantaged sort of like tax base in this. We try to be the best we can be. <laughs> smart, smart, smarter than I look, hey. Um, okay, and so any other things to kind of, in your mind, talk through on the office buildings in terms of where you sit today, leasing strategy uh, that the, the listener might find interesting? Or It's hard, you know, it's hard to find, you know, what, what is interesting, right? There's, a, there's an amount of risk that comes with these projects, and uh, our market rewards people that, you know, are having to develop on spec. And that's why Perry, Arriaga, Sobrato, et cetera, have all been super successful. Clearly for us, we're trying to build a little bit different building, mm-hmm. whether it's in the configuration, whether it's in the floor plates, and how they can be flexible, both growing and shrinking, uh, building identity. So there's a lot of things that we've done that others do too. But as we develop out this sub-market, I think it has given it a unique flair because it's, it has retail. It has yeah. you know major league sports. It has both office and amenities. Proximity and then, to rail, airport, and now highways. it's going to have fifteen hundred apartments. So it's um, it's pretty nifty when you get to look at the whole picture. But you know we're not done. We've got easily two or three years more of hard work to go. Yeah, and I was going to say even from leasing, it's kind of its own submarket. I think you might have even said that, but like. It wasn't its own office environment. I mean, it was an industrial area. And I think a question I heard from people they were curious about hearing your combined perspectives on is, um, has the demand that's shown up in terms of leases struck or potential interested tenants had any theme to it? Said another way, it is an innovative area. And was it like FANG companies who've been looking at it? Are they other companies that are mid-peninsula looking to move down? What were the themes you've heard in terms of positive uh, reviews on the architectural style, the interconnectivity, uh, a lot of the unique themes that are built into this? That's a good question. I mean, I, I think we've we've generally seen kind of, I mean, obviously tech companies, I mean, that's what you're gonna, that's who you're gonna see in Silicon Valley, but we've seen a lot of, you know, North San Jose, West Side, San Jose, Cupertino, um, Sunnyvale, we're not really seeing much north of that come down to this site. Yeah, but I think it's generally Silicon Valley companies that are kind have of. been looking at this area. Um, I don't know that there's a theme in terms of terms of technology, but um, you know, I would say it's primarily tech companies. We had a couple that weren't early on yeah. that looked, um, but I would say ninety percent plus have been technology companies looking to stay in the Silicon Valley West Side, if you will. That, right. You know, have C suites that probably live in. Saratoga, Los Gatos area, yep. you know, west side of the South Valley. Um, I, I agree. I, I think the C-suite lives in proximity by car. And if you think about when we started this project, the ability for us to draw from San Francisco, from an employment base, really is, is a, a game changer. And so... Well, also the proximity to that Caltrain, which is super unique. I mean, there's only a handful of locations that have that in the valley that link to the city when you have 20-somethings wanting to live there, Absolutely. commute down without sitting on 101, at least before COVID. There is also, I, I think, uh, there's a lot of sex appeal from the exposure these buildings have, be it to the airport, super prominent, yeah, to the rail, with people flowing by on both sides. So whether it be for the ability to attract employees or the ability to socialize your brand. I think these buildings gave that. The other thing, too, that I think that's made this a unique project, there's always you know a shadow factor when you're around a major company, whether it be any of the FANG tenants at Apple, Google, et cetera. So to be near them, have your own identity, 
not be subjected to you know losing a lot of employees by being on a shared campus, let's say out in Moffat or you know wherever. I think uh, it afforded these tenants to come here, scale, draw, and have their own identity without being stepped on by somebody bigger up the food chain. And be in the background photos of Quakes games. And be in the background <laughs> photos. Of you can photobomb at PayPal Park. I think it's also interesting. We've always said, um, being on this site, rarely do you go into a, an area where the infrastructure around you is potentially improving in the future. Yep. So by having BART come here, that's always a draw. I mean, hopefully it does come. Um, but being able to link to downtown with the BART and the whole East Bay and then also have, like you said, Caltrain up to San Francisco and even back to San Jose was a huge factor for well, these tenants coming here. And we'll jump to like the balance of the site because we've only covered kind of like through the office piece. But this is a good interjection for another thing people wanted to hear about, which is uh, a unique element of the site is the proximity to rail and all the other stuff we've talked about. But there's actually a connector that had to be built. Uh, underneath, I think it's Caltrain and commercial service tracking to get to the Caltrain station. So a question I had is, uh, physically, why did you go subsurface versus a flybridge? And two, walk me through the process of just getting it approved so that you could you know, physically put in the connector. So another way I think of like some projects we've done, and it's like working with the city or the state to get them to agree to anything can be difficult, let alone going physically over or under a track, presumably across several different easements, whether that's fiber, whoever ultimately owns the railroad lines, which probably isn't Caltrain, but let me just shut up and listen. Like, yeah. <laughs> It's been so long. <laughs> it, uh, was that your personal Vietnam? Yeah. No, actually, it was interesting. It was, a, it was a priority from day one for us. So when the site came available to acquire, as we've already talked about, getting that transit link was absolutely vital. So for the Santa Clara train station to only service, I'm going to call it, to the south towards the University of Santa Clara and not to the north, to the airport side, seemed counterintuitive to everything we're trying to do in the valley with connectivity and with transit. So we set out, and that was an absolute mission for us. Uh, this site required us to coordinate the Metropolitan Transit District, uh, Union Pacific, all the fiber providers, and BART, because BART VTA, yeah, was a, yeah. in the VTA was yeah. the representative of BART. So, One agency like that's hard, let alone times five or yeah. however many. <laughs> uh, to your point about subterranean versus elevated, uh, Caltrain wanted it subterranean because you could underbore and come up uh, between the north-south uh, connection. Uh, BART wanted it overhead, and, uh, and we went back and forth on that, and eventually... I think BART's budgeting started to, you know, exhibit some cracks, and we modified the design of the tunnel to appease Caltrain and to appease VTA, uh, and then from that it was a, how do you finance it? So we led that charge. It, how did you finance it? It was mostly our money, so it wasn't that hard. So, uh, <laughs> it's called self-funding? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we gave them our money. It made the project go a lot faster. It did. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so uh, then we ceded control to, was it Caltrain or to uh, VTA, VTA to build it? And VTA led the charge and got it built. So you skipped through like a pretty interesting step. It is like you're going underneath a live rail track, so you had to dig a hole, put up the shoring, pour the concrete, and it's a live rail line where people commute and, like, rail stuff is going over it. Yes. Physically, like, how did you construct it? Uh, if you actually go to our website and you dig around hard enough, there's a two-minute video of uh, week-long construction. Hunterproperties.com yes. for those listening. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, um, it was four days over a Thanksgiving weekend. We built the whole tunnel. And you shored it, or like you had everything done in four days? They literally had, it's pretty amazing. There's a, I think you can just find it if you just say Santa Clara Underground Tunnel yep. in YouTube, you can find it. Um, but literally, they had these precast pieces of the tunnel. Oh. And so they, they stopped like the slices tracks. of bread. I'm like yeah. the curing would take more than four days if yeah. it was poured. Yeah. Exactly. But they stopped the tracks, they dug the hole, they put these pieces in, stacked them all together, and then literally poured over the top. So there was only oh, one pour of concrete. 
put some rock back on top, put the tr tracks back up on Sunday, and open it back up. That's crazy. It was amazing. It, it was $11 million in four days. Yeah. <laughs> I can't count that high, but it sounds like a lot of money. <laughs> it did. <a> long time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, and to make it worse, you can watch it in two minutes and go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, but things like that you don't see or think about. People drive by Don Coleman, and they're like, okay, I kind of know about this, but, like, lo the logistics of how that all occurs isn't magic. It's super important, and... Anyways, appreciate you guys sharing that. No, it, it, it's, a, it's a great comp. So if you look at anything, you know, go from San Jose to San Francisco and look at the rents, whether it be for apartments or office, in adjacency to a transit hub, they're 20 to 25% higher. So we knew uh, we wanted to have a transit-oriented site. We just needed to add transit. Yeah. So <laughs> just that simple. <laughs> just that simple. Uh, so that actually that was a, a, a fun part yeah. and a crucial part of the project. That's awesome. And then I think kind of intuitively on that same north end of the site, uh, for those who look at this online, there exists a future ability to build some residential. So kind of strange to have a site with retail, soccer stadium, office. Oh, and there's a hotel, by the way. Two hotels. I, I did not know there was two, but that's crazy. Are you guys building those or do you sell them to operators? What we do is we entitle them and then we sell them to operators. Okay. So, uh, and then what are the flags? Uh, the first one is Marriott. Uh, with their Element brand being developed by a, uh, a good partner, Nexus Development in Southern California. And that one's right by the, the stadium. Yeah. And the second one <clears throat> is just on the far side of the Verizon campus. Uh, uh, I call it the north side of the property, but the, maybe the, the west side. Northwest. Northwest. <laughs> and, uh, and that will be about 225 rooms, a full-service hotel. And I'm sorry, the flag on it, to be determined? TBD. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Cut. And then so, um, yeah. on the north end of the block, you've got the ability to build how much resi? And are you guys doing it or someone else? So it's 1,600 apartments that okay. were approved in yep. uh, essentially four buildings. So the front two buildings that yep. flank the hotel and the entitlement um, are under construction. Well, potentially under construction in the next few days, hopefully. Um, With you guys, though, or is it? We actually uh, subjected that site to a long-term ground lease, so okay. we kept the fee, and we signed a long-term ground lease with Holland Development oh, cool. out of Portland, and they'll build a Type 3, which is 5 over 2, 725-unit uh, apartment project, about 45,000 feet of retail. There'll be a <laughs> two-acre park, uh, and then we've kept the entitlement and the development rights to the next 750-plus units. Wow. Live, work, play, shop, soccer in one place. Exactly. Take ambient drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, again, I know we've been on this for a while. I, I mean, I can't thank both of you enough for spending the time making it happen. And um, any, any parting comments to the audience or reflections that are appropriate in your mind? Age over beauty. Go ahead. <laughs> go, go to your next NIAP event. <laughs> there you go. Cur Cur Curtis is on the board, and uh, I think Deke's got to be once yeah, or twice I, I past Yeah, I guess my president. observation would be is uh, it's a long business, and, and play it long. And it's, uh, it's a great great valley from NIAP to all the other associations, and uh, it's a rewarding place to live and play and work. It's less than a degree and a half of separation, but... Um, <laughs> Anyways, wholeheartedly, thank both of you for Thank making you. this happen. Really thank appreciate you. it. Appreciate it. Bye.